I don't, I don't take that as don't dream, don't strive. I, I take it as more like, Hey, when you get there, you're probably going to want to do something else. So don't, don't, don't invest so much of who you are when a situation works out or when it doesn't because fuck the moment. Like all we really do is have now. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Jacob Miranda, an advanced doctoral student in the Experimental Psychology Program here at the University of Alabama, where I have a concentration in social psychology. And I'm Cassie Witt, a pedagogical assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Western Kentucky University. Together, we are the hosts of Corrupting the Youth, a podcast about the teaching of psychology. If you love psychology, education, or both, then this is the podcast for you. Hello, 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 beautiful people. Welcome back to another episode of Corrupting the Youth. Today's a very special episode with a very special guest. We have Mr. Kwok Hong, and Kwok is the Director of Experiential Learning. Specifically, who works at the Culverhouse College of Business at the University of Alabama. He's earned his degrees from the University of Waterloo and lives here with his wife, Dr. Chris Hong, and daughter. As Director of Experiential Learning, Kwok works with various students, populations, and external partners to create experiences for students that, and I quote, develop their thinking and grooms their hearts with the goal of building a community and culture that supports students' transition from college to career. His accomplishments include establishing UA as a premier recruitment spot for consulting firms that historically have only recruited from Ivy Leagues. He's helped UA students get into prestigious firms such as the Boston Consulting Group, the Bain & Co., McKinsey & Co., and of course, Deloitte. Welcome, Kwok. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Jacob. Yeah, we are so happy to have you on this episode. Um, we thought we would start just by asking you, I know Jacob gave a bit of an introduction, but asking you like what your educational background is, um, but also like your path to caring about teaching and mentoring leaders. How, how'd you end up in that? Well, in the late 1900s, yeah. um, <laughs> as Jacob pointed out, I went to a school called the University of Waterloo which to this day is known for math and, and engineering, um, as, as well as being a co-op school. So whether you study psychology or engineering or accounting like I did, you do four to six semesters of co-op. Um, so that's that's where I started as, a, as an accounting major who studied to become a, a CPA and, and go out and work for a CPA firm. Um, quickly realized that wasn't really my path. Um, I was an okay accountant, but I really liked talking to people and learning how businesses work. And through those conversations as a 21-year-old talking to 40, 50, 60-year-old executives, I realized they, they had such rich experiences that they were willing to share with me, potentially initially because I was their auditor and they had to, but eventually because maybe we had cool conversations. And so if anything, I, I think that's where some of the bug for teaching came from, which was I was being taught by those that were older and more experienced than me. So as I, I got deeper in the firm, became um, 
I guess, progressed to more uh, senior roles, being responsible for leading teams or managing teams. Um, I had this steady stream of, of young people, of young professionals entering their career, starting a new firm, starting a new role. And so it, it was on me to then to, to teach and mentor them and, and help them grow. And again, through that process, I began to meet senior partners, different people in different companies who also took me under their wing and, and helped me grow as well. Uh, and so that, that was just part of my professional career. And about 10, 11 years in, my wife finished her PhD program. Uh, we decided as a family to have her career lead. And she took a, an academic faculty role at, at Tulane University in New Orleans. And that was very far from home for us. Um, and that's when I made the transition from consulting into academia. And, and that, that was an obvious uh, pairing for the teaching. Now that you know, I had this administrative faculty role, I had an opportunity to create service learning experiences uh, at Tulane. And then now that at the University of Alabama, Alabama very much the same way where uh, I'm, I'm creating learning experiences for students um, to expose them to different contexts in the quote unquote real world, um, helping them make that transition from college to career. I think it might be helpful also to tell people who are listening in, like how we know you. Um, so uh, our advisor, uh, Cassie and I's advisor, is she still considered your advisor, Cassie? Do you consider informal advisor, mm. I guess? I think that's like, that's a real, that's a lifelong relationship. That's a lifelong relationship now that you're a doctor at some new university, right? Like you're still, she's still your advisor. So uh, right. Alexa, tell it. Um, before my time, I'm not sure if it was before your time or started with your time, Cassie would do a summer reading group. Um, and basically it's just like a, not necessarily a journal club, but just like a reading group where there would be in the summer, one article a month and all articles would have a theme. So like, I think one summer was a theme of like gender and sexuality. Another theme was generally like philosophy. Um, but this past summer, the summer in 2022, it was focusing on pedagogy and teaching. And so at least how I met Kwok was through him attending the summer reading group for teaching, mm-hmm. uh, and we got to meet at least three, four times. He got to hear me ramble quite a bit there. I got to hear him always like provide some good insight. So I'm just like, huzzah. Um, so I guess my, my question for you is, how did you hear about the reading group, right? Uh, what made you join it? And generally speaking, the more broader question is being part of a teacher, at least in my opinion, having like being a good teacher is you kind of have to have some sort of steady philosophy, right? Like you have to have some clarified teaching philosophy in your head. And for Cassie, hers... Um, what makes hers unique is usually around epistemic dependence or appropriate collaboration. For me, I go for an authentic leadership style and intellectual humility. Like to me, that's kind of what my hallmark is. And so above and beyond the summer reading group, I was kind of like, can you share a little bit about your own personal teaching philosophy and like what you think, like what makes it stand out to you? Yeah, totally. So if I go back to how do I, how do I know you? How did I find about the reading group? Uh, when I first got here to Alabama, um, I didn't have very many friends. And so there was a group of faculty, mainly ANS faculty, um, uh, that played softball together. And so this was art and art history, psychology. I think there's a history person, uh, no business people, but somehow I got looped into this uh, softball group because of Alexa. And I met Alexa at O'Henry's coffee shop. 
because one day she was working there. Uh, well, not working at the shop, but she was working on whatever research or something in the corner. And I got there with my daughter and she was wearing a, a Roots shirt, which is a very famous or well-known brand in Canada. And Alexa noticed the shirt and just said something to us to say, oh, uh, great sweater. Uh, are you Canadian? And so that kicked off a conversation where we we actually realized that we went to high schools not too far from each other. And from there, I think it was Alexa that, that introduced me to the faculty group, the softball group, and ultimately this uh, reading group. And I think I participated for the first time, probably early on in your uh, PhD studies, Cassie, mm -hmm. uh, maybe went to one or two calls and just because of my schedule and life didn't, didn't show up for the rest. And then COVID years, I think I just didn't do it. And then this past summer, because it was focused on, on pedagogy, I was like, let's do it because this somewhat transitions to your second question, Jacob, which was this, like, you know, what is my teaching philosophy? And I don't know if I've ever actually sat down and ever articulated it. Definitely not for a, for professional reasons or for like a, a packet of application. It's just, just kind of cobbled together based on my own experiences. And I, and I think the, the one experience that underpins it all and has been consistent throughout my life is always feeling a bit out of place. I was uh, was an Asian kid, I guess, uh, I'm Vietnamese uh, in a community of mostly Indians and Sri Lankans. Um, and so then from that perspective, it was a little bit different. Uh, I went to school uh, at Waterloo, where almost all of my high achieving students went to really great high schools and and not to suggest that my school was not great. It was it was a wonderful learning experience, but you, know, you probably wouldn't find it on a, a top 10 ranking somewhere. Uh, I went into the, the workforce as a very few amount of people of color uh, looking around and, and primarily being mentored by wonderful people who were all white. Now uh, I'm in an academic environment where you know everyone's minted as PhDs some in fields that are very relevant to what they do, some in fields that are totally random to what they do. And, and as a non-PhD trying to, to affect change, um, that, that does actually impact my ability at times and it's frustrating. So I share those examples to say, I've always felt a little bit different. And so my teaching philosophy is, is very much connected to this, which is how do I help people find their place and voice in the spaces that they occupy? And I know that's super abstract, but you know, I work with engineering students. I work with business students. We work on specific things like consulting. Uh, we also work based on the student population. So I work closely with first-gen students who want different things, not maybe consulting, maybe not, um, maybe something business, maybe not. Uh, but regardless of the student population I work with, it really is helping them find their place within what they're studying within the, the University of Alabama context. And then, and then ultimately, like, how, how can they find their voice in that, in that context? Is it they want to make something happen? Do they just want to be a good student? Do they want to go work in a certain geography or in a certain industry? Um, and so that's really where, or I guess that's really how I, I would suggest this all comes together and why it's based on something that I've experienced my whole life.
What a wonderful student-centered answer. Are you grading him, Cassie? That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I actually hey, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, I really did love your answer. Um, and like part of it, you know, like you were talking about like feeling out of place. And like part of that was like being surrounded by, you know, people who have PhDs, like some of them relevant to like what you do and some of them not. Um, so I think one question I have for you is like, what advice do you have for instructors who are like early career or like pre-tenure or even on a non-tenure track? Like how can you like create change or, you know, resist harmful hegemonic practices or perspectives without the protection of tenure? Like, how do you, I guess, like, how do you fight the good fight when you don't have much like systemic power? Yeah. And, and this is a tough question because I have to be clear with my own background, right? Like, you know, I'm coming from um, 10 years of consulting and professional advisory experience. Mm -hmm. I started in academia as administrative faculty where basically I had the majority of my load, um, what's it called, um, excused, bought out, exchanged, mm -hmm. whatever it is, so that I did administrative work. Um, while I never had a uh, the protection of tenure, just the nature of my job was such that my administrative responsibilities carried more weight than than my teaching. Mm -hmm. And so like with that as the background, like. For me, whenever I meet new instructors, the major piece of advice I give them is you've got to be you because they're coming in and maybe they're teaching a core course that has a very firm curriculum. It could have a set assignments. It clearly has like specific learning goals that likely link to the following course. Right. And because of that, there is a lot of boundaries that they have to, to play in. Uh, but they also get what I think is not the greatest advice, which is like, oh, you know, you have to be a certain way in this institution. You can't do these things because I've been burned. Um, and I think those like that advice comes from a good place. But as someone who's new in an institution and trying to find their way, like maybe don't color it so much. Let, let people almost screw up in a way that allows them to find their place and voice in teaching. And so, you know, I, I, I look at a very specific example recently, you know, I had an instructor, it was a, a young woman who historically has worked in a very um, male centric environment, like in a factory, mm -hmm. uh, manufacturing factory environment. And uh, she's come here to teach um, within, within one of our programs. And and I just, you know, we were just jamming about like, you know, how, how do you find your style? Like, you know, what's useful? And I, I remember telling her that, you know, she's got to, she's going to own all of these experiences. Like, I don't know what it's like to be a, a young woman working in a manufacturing uh, environment where it's predominantly male. I got to assume it's tough, but I got to also think you've learned great lessons that you could either bring directly into your teaching or that you could share with your students as they navigate what it's like to be a young woman or heck just, just different or like, you know, not the, the, the majority population in an environment. And it was really cool. Cause recently she came up to me and she just said, Hey, just finished for my first couple of weeks class. I've been thinking a lot about, you know, how I bring out myself and show myself. And, and I'm really glad I have, because I think I've connected with my students on a level that I wouldn't have had I just stuck to the, the notes, so to speak. Mm-hmm. 
I have a sort of follow-up to that question. So I think kind of when you mentioned your teaching philosophy and even connect to your answer now, it was very much of even for like new instructors, meeting them, like helping them find their place within education. And they're going to have some successes. They might want to be creative. Sometimes you have to let them run into a wall, even though you might be like, hey, listen, because um, making mistakes is also part of the process. I guess my question is what like maybe a counterfactual, like a different scenario would be what if you have someone who is more confident they're teaching, they've kind of practiced a different type of teaching or innovative teaching, but instead you don't have the people who are in charge of the incentives, the people who are in charge of your pay, the people who might be in charge of your tenure aren't supportive of what you're doing. And they're very much not like, hey, if, hey do we have some curriculum standards that we have to make sure across all classes, but we'll give you some flexibility. What if they kind of strangle that flexibility instead? and saying like it's our way you're at this school so it's our way like my question is if there is someone who wants to stay someone who loves university someone who loves their students how do you go about creating a cultural change in that environment where you don't like you're new and you don't have a lot of coalition building essentially like how do you go about building coalitions and building change i mean clearly that's tough right um I would suggest almost all of us want to be us, um, you know, in the context and whatever context we live in uh, and work in, uh, and and affect change. And it's tough when you're surrounded by what you feel is um, massive walls, massive massive barriers to doing that. Uh, I, if I was working with this person specifically, I'd really want to try to understand the specific things they feel restricted by, because. Yes, the ideal situation is the tone at the top, you know, whether that's your department chair, whether that's your CEO, whether that's your mentor is pushing and advocating for you in the way that allows you to be you like that's the gold standard. Right. And. There may be environments where that's not the case, but. The lack of that top down type of influence to me, doesn't mean that you can't do it. It means it's going to be a little harder. It means you're going to have to maybe be a bit cagey about how you do this because I would think most academic environments have enough freedom that you get to still determine what happens in your classrooms, right? This is where I kind of go back to the, I have historically never taught a a core curriculum course that everyone takes. And I totally understand that those courses are much more rigid than some of the electives that I think y'all either, either have taught or hope to teach in the future, right? And I think particularly in the context of the, the elective or something where it's not so rigid, even though the broad message might be, you need to do things in a certain way, I'm guessing most classrooms don't have someone sitting there monitoring you the whole time. And so a core aspect of academic freedom is being able to execute on the objectives that hopefully you share with your institution and your department and whatever else you need to, you know, be mindful of, but how you do it is still up to you. And that's what I mean by like, I'd, I'd really want to work with people to be like, even if you don't have that high level support, what exactly do you feel like you can't do? And the second part of my answer then would be like, and, and what are you willing to risk to accomplish this? 
because again, we would all love to be in an environment where it's riskless. I can be me. I can do the things I want to do. I can affect the change I wish to see in the world with no risk. And the reality is there are zero environments where you can do that. And I would love that that exists, but I've not seen it in my 20 plus years of working in many different contexts. There is risk. So how much do you want to do the thing that you want or accomplish the thing that you want? And what are you willing to risk? So I am definitely one who has had my hand slapped in different situations where I could look someone in the eye and explain what I did. And I guess maybe that's a litmus test for me throughout my, my career has been like, if this totally goes south and the, the worst case scenario that I'm thinking about comes through, am I going to be able to look in my boss, chair, deans, whatever client's face and say, this is why I did it. This is how it, I thought it would accomplish the objectives that we share. And I understand now why this was bad in some way. I'm willing to accept the consequences. And, and only if the only time I feel truly exposed is when I'm like, you know what? I don't think I can pass the look me in the eye test, at which point I'm not going to do it. I love that answer because I feel like sometimes when Cassie and I talk about educa- uh, education, is it, uh, as a quick aside, I don't know why, but is it pedagogy or pedagogy? I think you, I've heard you say it pedagogy and i've always pronounced pedagogy this is just for any listeners who are curious about how that word is pronounced i am now curious as i, t- I still have a stream it's, of consciousness so I, I don't i don't know if i have an answer i, I think it's uh, to use a business context it's also like you know do you say finance or do you say finance mm-hmm. and i've heard some people say it depends how stuck up you are <laughs> so maybe this is the same thing i don't know i mean I it's kind of like good... yeah like data and data you know exactly I think that's probably a good listener poll. Mm-hmm. Is it? Yeah. Send us, tweet at us, Ooh, pedagogy yeah. or pedagogy. I will stick up gaji, um, even though it's probably wrong, because every time I try to pronounce a word, it's always probably the wrong way. Um, who, if, if I was basically when Cass and I talk about pedagogy before, and we tend to be like on the more idealistic end of things, right? Like, try it out, give it a shot, build on your teaching philosophy. And I really appreciate your answer of, it's a very, the idea of like the reality is that there is risk, right? And sometimes I think I'm guilty of like maybe overlooking the risk or maybe overselling kind of like innovative teaching, but like all of us have read in that reading group of like teaching to transgress, right? Like we've read people who talk about like, sometimes there is going to be a bit of danger, right? This isn't just like roses and everyone's happy dappy. Like sometimes you're going to get real pushback. Sometimes you're going to get a slap on the wrist. Sometimes there's going to be a lot of people who don't support you. Um, And I really appreciate you kind of giving that realistic picture of just saying, listen, there's no, or at least no workplace that you worked in. I'd argue most workplace, like there's always going to be at least some minimal risk, right? someone taking it the exact wrong and for for you to say hey don't just try to do creative things willy-nilly at the very least do a deep reflection and to be able to have what was it like your look me in the eye test at least how i interpret that and you can correct me from but i interpret that as like think if you're going to do something creative at least think about it deeply and is it intentional like don't just do something just to do something do something with intentionality have a good rationale for it because if you don't then you can't look me in the eye you can't look at anyone in the eye you can't just say i for shits and giggles i did it and it's like well that's that's you can't say that 
Absolutely. And then, I mean, I think your question really was focused on uh, the department and institution that you work within um, and, uh, you know, the opinions or or influence of those that have over power over you. Right. But I think the truth is on the flip side, the the work you do with students, it it's the same thing. Right. You're going to try things to try to uh, advance a learning outcome or to accomplish something specific in a class. and not only, you know, may the students not learn that or it might not lend, you may actually offend some students with your approach. And I think it's the same thing. It's like you've taken risk in order to accomplish something. Well, what happens now if Cassie comes back and says, hey, Kwok, you kind of outed me in this exercise about, you know, common experiences. And it's like, crap, like that. Of course, that wasn't the intention of the exercise. But now I see how some of these questions may have outed certain different people for whatever it is. Like maybe it's just like, oh, you know, like who hasn't flown on a plane? Yeah. And someone's like, OK, I mean, it's relatively fun, right? Like it's not it's not political. It's not like but then 29 people in the class put their hand up and the one person's like, oh, I, I feel outed now. Like, what do you what do people think about me now? I feel judged. And it was like, oh, that that wasn't ever part of the exercise. The exercise was more to say like, oh, we're, we're kind of the same and different. But now I also see that. But I can now have a conversation and say like, hey, can, can you see the totality of the exercise and the intentionality associated with it? I recognize that a unintended outcome occurred and that you feel bad. And I'm here to make up for it. Right? I'm here to recognize the hurt I did and then make up for it. Like, and so I think it works both ways, both to, I guess, up and down at a most generous or most general level. No, definitely. I feel like I'm going to offer your like motivational services for like $500 an hour. We're just going to mark you as another consultant just for people on a one-on-one basis. Be like, listen, if you need a talk, we got <laughs> someone for you. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Um, so this is something like that I struggle with. Uh, well, I guess, especially like someone brand new in a faculty position too this year is like, sometimes I feel like I'm being too idealistic with like my goals, like in my classes and like learning outcomes and objectives, or even just like wanting to create like organizational change. Um, I don't know. Have you like ever felt that way? And like, if so, like, how do you I don't know, like, how do you kind of ground yourself more, you know, because it's like, I, I like being an idealistic educator in many ways. But at the same time, it's like, oh, Cassie, you have to be realistic about these things. Yeah, I, I, real struggle, right? Like, mm -hmm. the, my, my immediate reaction is, please don't let that flame die. Like, we need that, right? At the same time, remember that you got to be patient. So I would describe myself, particularly my younger self outside of school, like, you know, shortly outside of school as extremely righteous, extremely idealistic, impatient. You know, I wanted the world and I wanted it now. And at least for me, you know, the, the experience that kind of broke it or at least helped measure it a little bit more mm -hmm. was I kind of had a list a list I built up in high school, a list I built up in college of things that I wanted in my life, things I wanted to accomplish. And some of them were bigger 
and I guess I guess that's judgmental, but some of them were were me more meaningful, like finding a, a life partner who I could spend life with. Um, some of it was abstract, but also important, like finding financial stability. Um, you know, my parents came to Canada as refugees in the 70s and and didn't have much and really relied on the generosity of of the community and people in their lives. And not that I didn't want the support of others. It was really important to me to say, I want to stand on my own two feet. I want to be independent of uh, my parents and needing their help financially, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was something important. Other things were somewhat superficial, right? I wanted to make a certain amount of money. I wanted to drive a, a new car, like, a, like et cetera. And so I had this list and I worked really hard to make it happen. And and for the most part, the list was complete by 25. And I realized that at that time I was fucking miserable. <laughs> and part of it was because I realized the list was very self-centered. It was just all about me and me getting the things that I wanted. And so my, the idealistic and righteous part of me was really focused on how do I do the things that I think are important really for me? And I share that to say that that was when I started to realize, you know what? I have a lot and I care a lot. And it wasn't that I didn't care about others. I just didn't realize how important it was to have me in the context of others, which is really where all of that, you know, teaching philosophy, all of the the work I do with with students and teams, um, you know, at the firm or now in, in academia, like where that came from. And when I started doing that, I realized, ah, this work is harder and it takes longer. But when it started to hit, it was much more impactful. And so What's the advice, uh, I guess, to sum up all of that? It, it's really to say, don't don't lose that. It's it's absolutely needed. But also give yourself some grace to say, this ain't going to happen all at the same time. Some of the stuff's going to happen slower than others. Most of the stuff that's going to happen fast is the self-centered stuff, which is nice, but probably isn't the key to overall contentment. So balance a little bit, do some of the stuff that keeps your flame burning uh, and and know that, you know, this is a long game. Like, I don't know how old y'all are, but saying, you know, ideally you're, you're going to, you're going to have a long and, you know, fruitful life. Uh, ideally you're studying these fields that you're in to make a long-term impact. What does that mean? You got 30 years, 40 years, maybe more. You're playing the long game. Let's not let's not focus on that one faculty meeting that went sideways or that one exercise or class that, you know, just didn't land um, or that, you know, that that incident or whatever that really impacted you. And you feel like things aren't moving along. But those are all real things. Use it to feel yourself, not to to put out your file. I think that's really helpful advice. I, I feel like at least in my experience, you know, like 
going to school and then being in grad school and stuff, it was, it was very much sprinting. Like I've been sprinting for so long, which is exhausting. And then it's like, oh, you finally get the, the faculty job that you've like wanted, I guess, sort of, you know, like that self-centered, like achieved the career goal. And that now it's like, okay, but I, I can't keep sprinting anymore. Right. Cause that is going to like affect the flame. So it's, I think learning how to run the marathon is kind of where I am right now. Uh, absolutely. I, I have a good, I have a good friend. He, I hired him um, many, many years ago as an analyst in the consulting firm. And now he speaks internationally um, about innovation and disruption. And um, in one of our jams, he said something just offhand. And I don't even even know if he meant this, um, but he said something that has stuck with me forever. And I think it really applies to what you just said, which is fuck the moment. And I think at the time we were just kind of talking about like his speaking career and how like his first like gig that he thought was going to be like the biggest thing ever. He was going to do like a TED talk on a university's campus. And, you know, he, he was like, this is the greatest thing ever. I've been building up all these materials and um, it, it's going to be great. And he's like, I did it. I booked no gigs after it was fine. And, and for him, that was like one of those moments where he's like, I, I thought this was it. Like, I thought this was where everything was going to happen. And, and as I reflected on my own life, whether, you know, I thought about these professional or personal milestones that I've really, really wanted. Like I, I spent years and hours of thought doing when I got there, they were nice, but they didn't change my life. They, they were relatively underwhelming. And so I don't, I don't take that as don't dream, don't strive. I, I take it as more like, Hey, when you get there, you're probably going to want to do something else. So don't, don't, don't invest so much of who you are when a situation works out or when it doesn't because fuck the moment. Like all we really do is have now. So do what you can in your teaching, do what you can in your research, do what you can in your life. Know that you're, you know, you're building towards whatever you're building towards and that, when you get to those moments, they're kind of nice, but you're probably just going to move on to something else. So do what you can. I'd like to thank you, Kwa, because we now have a title for the episode. Fuck the moment. <laughs> um, <there> you, <laughs> you can dedicate it to your friend right here, right now. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll get him. I'll get him to, to carry it. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe I can get him to, to share it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah, that's all it is. We're just networking. Everyone yeah. share, tweet, Instagram post. We would have an Instagram. We yeah. should. Do we? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but on uh, one, seriously, I was probably going to make that the title. And two, um, we kind of have been talking. This is a question that I wasn't originally planning on asking, but it kind of prompted me to. We've been discussing, one, like, what if that flame dies? And two, how to run the marathon, I think is how Cassie put it, and like keeping it alive. But I feel like one way that a flame can die is not necessarily it petter out, but that it almost burns too bright, right? And I think you kind of hinted at this, of what if you have someone who gets so frustrated with the system, who gets frustrated with so many of the obstacles that they instead take a, like a burn it all down, approach right so like they're fighting every fight they're going on every platform they're sharing this with everyone i feel like on one hand it 
it makes sense as an immediate gratification of like an emotional level, right? Like I'm frustrated and I need people to know that I'm frustrated and no one is doing anything and I need the change to happen. I need the change to happen now. And it, that's essentially kind of the sprint mentality that Cassie was taking in a different version of it, but it's like, let's do it quickly. Let's do it now. Let's just make it happen. We need to make it happen. If it doesn't happen, I'm out of here and I'm going to burn the place down with me. Uh, what advice would you give to someone like who is more like they might have that initial feeling and they want to burn it all down. Can you elaborate on your response to like burning it all down also means burning down the bridges, burning down the coalitions, burning down like the long-term impact of change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's very hard to like, I, I don't know. Like, do you have any advice for that person who can get riled up really quickly and just like, what would you tell them? Yeah. I, I think how I would answer is very much colored by how my career has been. Right. If, if you look at the beginning of it, it's, let's just say for simplicity, 10 years of professional services. Okay. It meant that I worked for clients that had goals. They didn't determine everything that I do, but what I did was based on their desires, objectives, and timelines. Even if I wanted to burn down the house, so to speak, I had to be very mindful that these clients paid the bills. So even if I fundamentally disagreed with what was going on, if I thought other uh, actions or, or, you know, plans made more sense, um, they paid the bills and they made the final call. And I was only an advisor. I say only like it wasn't a big deal, but I'm saying like that was my job was to advise. And so all I could do was be as open and transparent as possible as I guided them down a path. And I also had to accept their choices because they were my client. Now that I'm in a college uh, or at least an an academic environment and I work with college leadership, I work with on the other side, students. Again, it's not my call. I can tell a student that the best way to learn something is by doing these things, you know, learning through experience. Like, let's talk less, do more. Um, If the student doesn't want to do it, I can't make them. So again, to, to burn it down in this example would be like, okay, fine. Like you're all dead to me. Like we're not doing any, I'm not teaching you at all then. And it's like, well, is that really the answer? I, I don't think so. I gotta, I gotta meet them where they are. I gotta help them understand why I have data and experience that shows learning through experience is the most meaningful. And then, then I also have to accept that some people are going to be like, peace. Like I actually just want to do school. I got a job lined up. No, thank you. And I, I don't wish them well on the flip side, you know, with administration, with, with chairs, with heck with faculty that, that I could potentially work with. I can, again, push the things that I'm doing that like share the things I care about, but ultimately it's, it's up to them to either affiliate and, and support or just say, no, thank you. And, and so all of this, all of these experiences have led me to, effectively be the insider, sorry, like all of these experiences effectively have, have made me the outsider in, inside the matrix, right? Um, I've always been kind of the weirdo, I guess, going back into the whole, like, I've always felt out of place, but by being kind of the outsider on the inside, it actually has allowed me to shape the world that I'm in to look more like the one I wish would be everywhere. And so I've never burned down 
the house, so to speak. Um, I'm not suggesting you shouldn't. I'm just saying for me, that's been my experience of just be in those spaces and and affect them from the inside with with my perspective. And maybe that's how it's helped me be more patient or be more accepting, knowing that absolutely there are times where I'm just like, change is too slow. I wish I could just blow it up. Y'all smiling. What's going on? I was just thinking of a saying that my grandmother always says maybe once a week to me when she calls, she just text it of like, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink it. It's a very old person saying that she does actually literally say on a weekly basis. So when you're saying like, you can say, listen, this is what needs to happen here. The steps you can take, you can show them, you can make all the arguments. But if the person's not going to do it, they're not going to do it ultimately. And you can't, you personally can't own that behavior, right? You can't say like, did I do something wrong? Um, you just kind of have to acknowledge like that. Okay, then that was their choice. That was their action. Fuck the current moment. In the long run, what can I do? Right? Yeah, it's, it's a long game. It's a long game. And I think part of, you know, whether it's part of your plan or not, I mean, you're, you're joining this relatively old school closed system of academia you i presume want to tenure in order to gain additional academic freedom and the freedoms associated uh with tenure so that you can do the research that you want like these what are you going to do when you get there though right will you just hold on to the system the way it is will you evolve it to something that you think is, you know, more meaningful or, or more impactful in society? The answer is you don't know. You can say all you want about what you're going to do, but you don't know what life's going to be. You maybe become the most bitter academic out there because you've let the world beat you down. You've let the world just, you know, extinguish your fire or you store some energy, you do your things, you get to these spaces and then you put it in overdrive and you make change happen from the inside. I think that's a good point. And Jacob, Jacob's point about like, or I guess like the saying, like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Um, like I find that frustrating for many reasons, but I think like one of like the reasons is just like, it feels like an ego wound. You know, it's like I invested so much of my time and myself to like lead the student to like this moment. And then they, they, they're refusing you. We're like investing a bunch of like your time and energy to create some sort of like change in your department. And then it's like, they're not, they're like incredibly resistant to it. Um, I don't know. So I think like part of it, I guess my question is just like, how do you like <laughs> calm the ego, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, it's, I think it's a great question. And I, I think about the fact that the work that I do now is very much an act of generosity. Mm -hmm. And you do need to know a little bit about me, which is like, my wife is a tenured faculty member in accounting. Uh, she was recruited here to the University of Alabama and I'm a trailing spouse. And the work that I do now is work that I really want to do and work that I believe in. And so when I work with students or faculty or whomever I choose to work with, it very much is an act of generosity. And thinking about it that way has allowed me to, I won't say, I guess, like, like 
temper my ego because I still very much love all this and I want it to be good. Um, but it's allowed me to let go of the situations where that happens, where it's like, hey, you know, you need to get involved with my case teams. It's a big deal. You know, we invest a lot of time and resources in you and you are going to become a killer after and change the world. And someone politely declines. It hurts because you're like that. You're basically saying it's not good enough for you. And it's like, that's not what they're saying. They're saying I, I, I'm working basically a full time job while going to school. I also do like to go to Wine Wednesdays. Like I, I want to do things and I don't have space for you. That's all they're saying. And so it's like, you know what, if this truly was an act of, act of generosity and they don't want it, then let them go. And it's also helped me realize that the, the rewards also don't have to be immediate. So one of my favorite things that happens is like two years down the road, four years down the road, someone out of the blue says, hey, uh, haven't talked to you in like you know four years. I thought about you today and something you said in a class or in a dinner discussion or in a whatever, and it's made more sense to me now. And it helped me through this career decision or it helped me with a relationship. Don't even know if you still do this thing, but thank you. And you're like, damn, I don't even remember saying that, but cool, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so again, the act of generosity, you throw the the pebble in the pond and it, you know, creates ripples. Yeah. You can see the immediate ones, but maybe those aren't the most meaningful to you. Maybe that ripple goes on for years and it hits something. And most of the time it's not going to come back to you, but once in a while it does. And so it's just like, you know what? I choose to believe that the world will be a better place in ways that I know and ways I don't know. And so I can just try. I love that. Also, I think I, I have one like last big question for you. Um, that is, I don't think it's necessarily a downer, but like, it might be interesting based off your the response that you just gave. So, currently in the social concentration at UA, we have like weekly seminars, right? And so, for the social psychology graduate students, a lot of them, you know, with Cassie gone, with a lot of the older students gone, we have a lot of fresh faces who are first and second years, right? And that's just not the majority of the group. Like that's, those are the demographics. I'm one of the oldest people there now, unfortunately, thanks to Cassie. Um, so screw you, Cass. Um, but that being said, our, one of our first meetings or what we thought would be good is to have an hour meetup of basically saying like, how do you succeed in graduate school? And a major topic was also, when should you quit? And that there is no shame in quitting. There is no shame in giving up. That sometimes... You have to recognize when the situation is not in your favor um, and it might not ever be in your favor. And so like it, it was it was a dynamic discussion. Not everyone obviously agreed on when is the right time. But I think everyone agreed that there is no shame in quitting. Um, so given your answer of being generous and maybe the rock will always return and skip back at you. But like. For you, if you're trying to create change in a department or an organization and you have the capacity to do so, right? So like I know in your certain circumstance for your wife, your family's here, but like if everyone was willing to like go with you, when for you would be the moment to be like, I don't think I want to be here anymore. I want to quit. Mm -hmm. So I think about this on two sides and the first side would be there are situations where you really do need to quit, right? 
And these are where if you're not getting out of bed, if you know yourself mentally and the the, the holes you find yourself in and you're finding yourself in those holes, um, those are times to quit. Absolutely agree. No, no shame in quitting. And only, you know, what those are, right? Like for me, uh, I have a very basic list when I'm in a hole, which is, have you woken up at a reasonable time? Uh, will you eat three meals today at generally normal times? Did you go outside and did you talk to someone? And if I can't check those off, that is usually a very good indication that I am in a bad mental hole. And if that persists, to me, I would advise myself to say, you just got to quit. Whether you have something lined up or whether you're still like, you got ideas to, to, to execute, quit, no shame. The broader answer, I guess, for me would be, I'd advise people that they need to be moving to something. So yes, it's frustrating. Yes, you feel like you've, you've run into a lot of barriers. You, you feel unsupported, unappreciated. What are you moving to? And if that's, you know, I'm, I'm leaving academia because I am going to start up a coaching organization that allows me to do a lot of my teaching and mentorship um, in a different way, in, a, in an environment with no constraints where I determine the constraints. Great. Do you feel like you're moving to something? Again, no shame. But I would be much more, um, much more willing to be like, Jacob, I think it's time to go. Go for it. Right. Uh, it's that funny middle ground between are you truly in a mental hole and are you moving to something that where like I would have more, more dialogue. Right? No, I just screw it. I'm done. Like, done, done, done what? And you're like, I'm just going to quit and eat cheeseburgers tomorrow for the next week and figure it out. And it's like, well, why? I was like, I just, I'm, I'm just so frustrated. And that's it. And it's like, okay, well, like, let's unpack that. Like, like what, like what is like, again, going back to the whole, like, like what can't you do or what can't you accomplish? Or like, let's, let's figure those out and say like, are there other ways and other levers we can pull to make that happen? But if either you're in a deep mental hole or you're jumping to something, I, I'm probably quick to be like, Good luck. Not too much of a downer. A good question. Yeah. A good answer. Yeah. Um, well, I think that that pretty much like wraps up all of our questions. Um, so I guess like in, in conclusion, like, do you have any like projects or anything cool that you want to like leave our listeners with? We'll like link your contact info in our show notes, if that's fine with you. Um, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, but yeah, like, any closing comments for our listeners? Remember, five hundred dollars an hour. I'm just saying. I'm still throwing <laughs> out that number. <laughs> uh, something that I'm really excited that I'm working on right now is building out what we're calling the Culver House First Gen Community. Uh, so, you know, broad estimates across higher ed is approximately fifteen to twenty percent of populations. Or, or student populations are first generation college students, which we define as parents or guardians did not finish a four year degree. Um, we have about 9,000 students in Color House. So, you know, what is that number? You know, don't check my math, but it's probably about 1,000 students that are first gens. Um, 
we're trying to actively engage first gens. It's not like home address or heck, I think you even have to, you have to say your gender, um, you know, and we're working on, you know, defining what that means. Um, it, but for first gens, it's, it's just a box and it's an optional box. So it's hard to identify students. And then, so it's obviously hard to engage with students. And so it's something that as a staff and faculty group, we are, are, are looking at and trying to engage more first-generation college students and, and really to, to support their academic and career success, but also determine how to support, say, financially. And so last fall, we, we set up for the first time a, uh, an emergency support fund where the idea would be if, if students got in a situation where they had an unexpected bill that might prevent them from continuing with school or we've, we've got funds now to support that a very small amount, but um, it, it's that type of thing. So that's, that's the work that I'm pretty excited about right now is, is how do we, how do we grow this? How do we support first generation student success? That sounds really cool. And it was the Culver house first generation community project. Yeah. Sorry. All right, then. Quack, speaking of generosity, you were very generous. I know like your whole month is like stuffed to the brim from back-to-back appointments. So you carving out an hour and an hour and a half for us random weirdos, we genuinely appreciate it. Um, and also you're making our job editing really easy. Uh, I don't think there'll be a lot to edit. <laughs> maybe partially because I'm lazy, but maybe not. Who knows, right? Depends how I'm feeling. I'll add some sound effects. We'll add a good chat. <laughs> Maybe you will. <laughs> Maybe I will. I'll have like a ka-ching thing every time I talk about his rate, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just that one. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you for Are being you? here. Uh, cool. yeah. It's all good. No, I, pre- I appreciate you having me. Like, yeah. I feel like I met Cassie at a coffee shop before because, you know, I just feel like there were probably times where Cassie and Alexa worked across from each other. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like I, I've known you for some time, even though I've never really talked to you until we had those pedagogy calls. And I guess we didn't really say this on the, the podcast, but part of part of why I agreed to do this is just I, I have a lot of respect for the work that both of you have done in your PhD program, you know, leading these groups, obviously through the retreat stuff, I learned a lot more about what the students within the psychology program have been trying to accomplish. Um, and obviously now on, on the flip side, you know, Cassie with your, your first landing spot and, and the work that you're doing. And so I, I have a, got a great level of respect for you know, what you have done and what I know you will go do. Um, and so it's, it's easy for me to, to cover out time to, to spend with y'all. Thank you. Truly. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. With that being said, I think this might be a great time to end the recording and we'll play some outro music and all that jazz. So Cassie, cut the wires. (laughs) All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. You had one job, Cassie. I know. A single course. I want to keep this in the recording, too. (laughs) All right. (laughs)